and you're you're absolutely right. That's what one of the things that makes research so fun is when things surprise you. They don't work out as you expect it. And, and by the way, it's a very important point I try to make with students is always be alert to that. If you, if you look at your, your experiments as something that's just gonna ver verify your, your hypothesis, that's not a good attitude. It should always be, how is this experiment, I wanna use this experiment to evaluate my hypothesis, mm -hmm. meaning that I have a very open mind about whether the hypothesis is correct or not. And you should be perfectly ready to accept that it's false. And in fact, maybe something else entirely is, is happening. So, and in my artwork, by the way, this is very common that we start out with one intention to build an art installation with one intention in mind, and we end up with something very different because we've learned something along the way and it changes. So I try to bring that same spirit into research. And here's an example recently was that we've been working with a surgical robot, surgical assist robot. And we have a, a version of the Da Vinci, the DVRK in the lab. And for years now, we've been struggling with that robot because it's very, it's, it's not repeatable, it's imprecise. So it's, you know, and the errors are on the order of, of, of several millimeters, five, up to five millimeters. And as you can imagine, if you're trying to do an, something with five millimeter error, it's very hard to get anything, to, to, to do anything. So I, 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 my, my, hypothesis, my strong um, assumption was that that was due to the cabling and that it's just inherent because cables are very hard to model and very unpredictable. So I was able to hire a, an engineer from Korea, Minho Huang, and he is very, very astute engineer, really careful. He went in and, and started to study this machine and really do a lot of measurements and experiments. And he found that actually the, the, the cables were, um, were actually predictable, the, the errors in the cable, if you knew the velocity of the robot. In other words, by just taking in the, in fact, it was only the sign of the velocity. In other words, which direction is it coming from? Then if you factored that in, then you could predict the, the outcome, the, 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 you could compensate for these small errors very, very effectively. And that surprised me. I was just, I was surprised that there was such a strong signal that was buried in what I saw as noise. And he found that signal. And then we were able, he was able to build a, a system that was highly, highly reliable, highly repeatable using this, this same hardware. And that was one of those cases where I just wouldn't, I just didn't think it was possible. And when I saw it, it's, it's, it's so exciting because now he very recently, he's able to, to achieve uh, the ability to do a, a task that surgeons train on, which is to move pegs. It's called the peg transfer task in the fundamentals of laparoscopic surgery. And this is well-defined, not something that we created, but it was, it's defined in, in the field of surgery. And so we, we studied that task and we started to replicate it with the robot, so fully autonomous. And we're able to get this to perform at the accuracy on par with the human surgeon. So in other words, of 120 trials, it gets 120 trials correct. And that is remarkable, by the way, when you watch it, you just see it's, it, you know, it just does this and there's no, it doesn't drop it, doesn't make a mistake. And it's a fairly complex manipulation. But what's also interesting is we've been pushing on now getting it fast. And so we have a very new result that just came out that shows that we can do this faster 
than, uh, than a human, faster than a trained surgeon. Now only by a small margin, but it's but in terms of the the variance and the the, um, the 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 average speed, we were able to to exceed that of a surgeon. So we call that superhuman performance. And I'm really interested in in this, with, namely, where can we do something that not only is on par with the human amazing ability, the human dexterity, but also can slightly improve on it, can be actually exceed human skills. So this was a case I was very surprised. I did not think we'd be able to get there. And um, and I was very, very pleasantly surprised in this case. Mm -hmm. Oh, very interesting. I think I would like to stop at the point you mentioned about at the beginning that about the result you get. And I think that's something most of the time the podcast will speak about the pressure that you have to publish positive results, always have to be positive. Mm -hmm. And that's clear. Yeah, yeah, you have to deliver a great result and has to be all positive and that's create a maybe pressure of the researcher that you have to have to fit the result with what you expected and that's create a problem how we can i don't know it's how we can avoid this problem as you mentioned yeah sometimes it takes a lot of time to make sure the results are reproducible and many factors we have to consider but because of a pressure we have to push and yeah i don't know how, how do you think about that it is a problem. You're absolutely right. So we, as a field, and I think this is true of science and engineering in general, it tends to be more excited and, and open to positive results than negative results. But negative results are very important because they teach you something that didn't work. And the, it, if, you, if you can say that conclusively, that's actually incredibly valuable to publish because it, it saves people time. And, and I'm always, I like it when when people explain what doesn't work. In fact, we, we've been um, encouraging, I encourage my students, but um, this came out of the, the, the Wafer Conference, the workshop on algorithmic foundations of robotics. A few years ago, we started adding a, a new requirement that every paper had to include a dirty laundry slide at the end. And that was where you reveal and, and you, you, you admit, where is the limitation of, the, of your work? and where can it be improved? And that's gotten to be a, a sort of uh, tradition, and I really like it. In fact, all my students in, at ICRA next week will be including dirty laundry slides in their talk. And it's, it's partly it's because I wanna say, if you're getting the paper published, wonderful, but in, don't forget to show where is it limited? What is the, what is the dirty laundry? <laughs> and, uh, and don't be ashamed of it because it's, it's, it's perfectly, reasonable every project any project has some dirty laundry right has something don't sweep that under hide that because it's so important because first of all it tells you where there's opportunities to improve so anyone watching your paper or listening to your paper will say ah okay i see where i can take that and improve that work because i can i can make that i can fix that piece of dirty laundry right so you want to make those explicit so to your point, I think as a field, it's really important for us to, to, to change our bias toward accepting systems that are not perfect, that, are, that have failure modes, and really studying those failure modes carefully. So another thing we've been doing in the lab is when systems fail, we don't just you know, try and average that out and say, okay, well, it succeeded you know, X amount of time. But I'm always asking, tell me about the failures. What exactly happened? How did it fail? And so we've been reporting on failure modes 
So we'll break it down. It failed in these different four different ways. And here is a fraction of times it failed in each way. And then that really helps us understand of what's going on, right? Certain of those failure modes are we can't fix, but others we can address. And so that process that really talking about failures in a very clear and open way is a great, great positive step for, for, for students, for everybody as researchers. So I think that's important. Now, the one last thing I want to say, Marwa, for, for anyone listening is that as, as, as reviewers of papers, we need to be a lot more generous than we are. And I have to tell you, I've been, I read a lot of reviews because when I was, I was editor in chief of the Transactions on Automation Sciences, you know, I'd see hundreds of reviews a week. And what, what was so interesting to me was that younger generation, junior researchers are often very, very harsh reviewers. Grad students are the worst. <laughs> they, are, they will slice and dice a paper and just rip it to shreds and you know recommend strong reject i mean i and i'll look at the same paper and i would say well i would say borderline accept <laughs> and so the difference is that we you, for years and years i've learned to be much more accepting and forgiving of the errors um the mistakes that, that i see a paper and i say okay I, I see where the good pieces of this are right what are the positive elements rather than just trying to to, to focus on its weakness because to your point about failure modes and, and, and negative results, the weaknesses are ex inevitable, right? I, I'd much rather see a paper who carefully talks about the failures and I'll never penalize an author for that. In fact, I reward them. But I, but I, I, you know, I think that our field, a lot of times a paper gets rejected because you've, you've admitted why it doesn't work and the reviewer pounces on that and then basically you know, in the review says, well, it doesn't work because of this, right? And now you feel like, oh, I, I, I was, I shouldn't have admitted that. But that's the wrong, you know, completely the wrong message to send to authors. So to your point, I think this is super important. And I, I hope that we, we do as a field, we evolve in a positive way to be accepting and constructive of the, the range of results that, that, that authors submit. 